Welcome back to Embracing Death. I'm your host, Julia. Join me each week as I chat with someone who has a unique relationship to death, all in an attempt to better cope with our own inevitable mortality. The subject of death can be really heavy at times and can cause some intense emotions. That is the whole aim of the show, is to create a place for people to share and relate to others so we can face our death with a little less fear and learn to embrace our eventual end. After all, what would living even matter if it lasted forever? This week I talk with Antonella, a dear friend who has spent the entirety of her life fighting for it. Chronic illness is something that many people have experienced on varying levels, but you will learn that Antonella, although was given a challenging life, she takes it not for granted. Antonella shares with me the process of getting an organ transplant at nine years old, what living with a chronic illness really looks like, and how she lives every day with a ferocious tenacity despite everything that this life has thrown at her. My name is Antonella Kasich, and I'm your typical 26-year-old, but with a chronic illness. Antonella, thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to just let everyone know that we are dear friends. We met in 2019 and uh, survived 2020 together with, uh, as both nurses, we were able to hang out, cope, and uh, became very close friends. And I want to dive right into your story because it is a very intense, long, and beautiful story. So if you could tell us a little bit about this chronic illness, what it is, when did it develop, and how old were you when you found out? Of course. So I have short gut syndrome, as they call it, um, and I got diagnosed with it at a year and a half old. I was born completely healthy, um, no problems, was the biggest out of three kids, completely functioning, played, ate everything, continued on. Um, and at about a year and a half old, my parents noticed that I started throwing up a lot and was just not eating anymore. And they decided to take me into the ER where I was born. So I'm originally from Metković, Croatia. Uh, so on your, in Europe, and that's where my whole story began. So they taught typically thought that this was just like a common flu cold season, um, just a new baby coming in, having two older brothers and things like that, where, Unfortunately, right as they took me in, I was rushed into immediate surgery to take out everything but the first 15 centimeters of my duodenum, which is the first section of your small intestine. So after that, I was diagnosed with short gut. And what short gut is, it's just a rare malabsorption disorder of, caused by a lack of function in the small intestine. So basically, my small intestines kind of just died off. It died off by having a volvulus and twisted off and slowly started dying off. That's what started causing me to throw up and have all of these weird symptoms that they didn't know about. And your small intestine is responsible for a very important aspect of life. It absorbs nutrients and helps your body grow, develop, maintain balance. And your intestines essentially did not do that. So it created a lifelong challenge for you of figuring out how the hell your body is supposed to absorb nutrients and maintain health, balance, hydration, and so many other things, which we will definitely get into a little bit more about how having this disorder has affected your daily life and how it just becomes your normal. So after you were diagnosed at a year and a half old, your family in Croatia made a decision to move you across the pond. So tell us a little bit about where did you move and kind of what happened with that process? 
so at the age of three, so after spending a year and a half in the hospital in split, um, my parents, the doctors, everybody knew that there was really no life for me yet unless I get an organ transplant. That was the only saving measure for me at the time. That was the only solution to our problems. Um, my parents posted ads at the time, newspapers, um, radio stations, everything throughout Europe to see where we could get found or get listed at. And at the time, 26 years ago, transplant wasn't a thing. Nobody talked about it. It was kind of like the new era. Uh, who would have ever thought about putting somebody else's organs into somebody else? It was just kind of a new experimental thing and nobody really knew what the success rates were. Um, and my parents stumbled across uh, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, which is the first city that started transplants. That's where it all came from with Dr. Starzl and how the whole transplants system started is from there. Um, so in May of 1999, my parents and middle brother traveled to Pittsburgh um, to get evaluated for transplant. They told us it was going to take approximately a year depending on my size and how sick that I was. And then with that year, I would get transplanted. And then within two, I would be back home in Croatia and be functioning normally. And so a few years passed before you actually received the transplant. Uh, tell me a little bit about when you got it and how old were you? How did the transplant go? Uh, so I received my first transplant on December 18th, 2005. Uh, I was nine years old. It was just kind of, we were going on Christmas break from school. Uh, and things like that. And I was actually sitting at the coffee table with one of our family friends eating cinnamon toast crunch. Um, and her phone started ringing and it was my parents and nothing just kind of thought they wanted me home. And she started panicking and was in tears, which started to make me panic, thinking something was really wrong. And she was like, we have to go. We have to go right now. And I was like, go where? What's going on? And she was like, they called you for a transplant. Like, it's time. It's time. It's a Christmas miracle. And I was like, no, they didn't. Stop it. Like, I just want to eat my cinnamon toast crunch. And she was like, no, Antonella, it's really your time. We have to go. Um, so that whole day was kind of a blur. Um, I remember going home and my mom and dad were sitting at the front door waiting with me with like a bag packed. My mom was in tears. My dad was in tears. My brother was looking at me and didn't even know what to say. He was still, uh, he was in high school at the time. And I just kind of looked at them and I said, guys, it's all going to be okay. What's wrong? Why is everybody panicking? Like, and I was like, this is what everybody wanted. So now it's the time to go. And nine-year-old, nine-year-old Antonella didn't understand that it is a massive, dangerous, risky surgery. And in your mind, it's like, I'm just going to get a new one. But in your, in your parents and older brother's mind is like, this is scary, but this is what we need. And so you had no fear. And, you know, I think that's really interesting to see the difference between a nine-year-old's point of view is like, well, this is what we need. So it, it is worth it. And then the parent, your parents totally in fear and just scared, but also hopeful. Yes. I just, I really didn't know what the future was going to hold at the time. And I still to this day don't know, but at the time I knew that's what I needed to be normal, uh, to play with my friends, to go to play soccer games, to be a cheerleader, to not have to have a central line and IV nutrients and be able to eat whatever I wanted to. That's the answer was right in front of me at the time. And I just, I thought it was all okay and it was going to happen and I would wake up and I would be walking and talking and it was just going to be going on from there. So 
but unfortunately, six months post-transplant, I developed um, PTLD, which is post-transplant lymphnotic disorder, uh, and the organ had to be removed, caused by severe rejection, where it was just, it was killing me more than it was helping me at the end. Um, that was a time that I think the day that I got admitted to the end of that, I don't remember that whole hospital stay, maybe a day or two of hallucinating in the ICU um, from just being overstimulated, pain medications, anesthesia, what was all going on. Um, but that was a month and a half stay. And I can only recall certain periods of time in that moment. And it was just, it was crazy. <laughs> Your initial transplant was totally normal. Everything went fine. And for the first six months, everything was going according to plan. Every Your body was taking the new organ. Everything was working. And then all of a sudden, this this sudden rejection happened and it caused you to have this, uh, you had to go and have the um, intestines removed. And now there's like a whole new challenge of now what, right? Was, was there an option to get a new organ or what was the decision moving forward from that? So everything was functioning normally. The body accepted it. We kind of played with anti-rejection medicines and things like that. And right at the time that I got severe rejection was talk about getting my ostomy bag reversed and getting my central line pulled. That was how good I was doing that within six months, this was all plans that we had. And I was eating, I was drinking, I was playing, I was recovering very well physically, mentally. I was a nine-year-old that just wanted to go out and play with friends. I could have cared less about my blood work or anything like that. And I just wanted to get my line out and my ostomy covered and everything. And then just kind of went downhill from there. And it was, we tried everything to save it. We tried very experimental drugs at the time. We tried chemotherapies. We tried more, everything that they could have possibly done to save this organ for me. They tried and they tried endlessly and it just wasn't meant to be, unfortunately. Uh, so that's, that was the scary part. I think afterwards it was scarier than it was beforehand because now I knew what was to await. I knew if I got a second one, what I was really, what I was should really expect and how it would look versus my first one, I kind of was fearless, went in it with clear mind and no expectations, nothing, or versus if I got retransplanted, who knows how it would have done and I would have been more scared to do it again. <laughs> and initially after you went in for the rejection, you had to go to surgery and you woke up in the ICU and you didn't know as a nine-year-old that your transplant had been removed. You just thought it was a standard kind of follow-up and you had to learn in the ICU after your organ was removed that you no longer had the transplant. Tell me a little bit about finding out that they had, re they removed your soul, you know, for lack of better word, this lifeline, this, this organ that you were gifted. According to everybody, I was in ICU for a little over 10 days at the time. That's how very bad I was and very sick. Um, and I remember being in the ICU. I remember my dad spending nights with me and washing my hair with some of the nurses and my mom singing to me. And I remember being there. I just wasn't fully aware of what was happening, what was going on around me. And this is right out when the movie Nanny McPhee came out. And I was so excited to watch it that my floor nurses, who I grew up with, promised me that I would watch this movie with them and that 
as soon as it came out, they were going to go to Redbox or Blockbuster. I don't remember what it was at the time and get me this movie to watch. And one morning the nurse came down that promised that she would bring it in to me. And she said, I have Nanny McPhee waiting for you when you come back upstairs, but I need you to do a little bit better. Next time will be better. And I looked at her and I said, next time, a next time for what? And she was like, nobody told you. And I just looked at her and I said, told me what, what's going on? And she said, Antonella, we had to take out your organ. Like you're no longer transplanted. That's why you're down here. Do you not remember any of that? And I just looked at her and full on started crying as a nine-year-old because I thought my life was over. I thought that the minute I got transplanted, my life would be normal and the port would be out and my ostomy would be reversed and I could eat. And that was basically like her giving me a, a lifeline ending. She was kind of just in a way put my life on halt. Um, not intentionally, obviously she had no idea. Nobody told me, um, but forever will I be grateful for her for being the person that told me, because I don't know how else somebody would have told me or when they planned on telling me or how I would have dealt with it if I was in a different state or didn't have any idea and just kind of kept thinking everything was okay. And then bam, one day they told me, so I forever thank her for that. Um, I tell her that all the time when I see her and just that that was like one of the most memorable moments of my life in a way, because it felt like that was the end, but really that was only the beginning for the rest of everything that was to come. In your mind, she's taking away that future of getting the, the ostomy bag. So the ostomy bag is an external opening in the intestine that was that, you know, you remove your stool from there. Uh, just because not everyone is familiar with these medical terms. So I try to explain uh, what it is. And that wasn't a chance for your, that new organ to heal without having to do work. Right. So they put that in at the time of the transplant. So you can, that organ can take and heal without kind of overworking it. And so for you, it was like, this nurse was taking away that future of I'm healing, I'm getting better. Instead, it's like, we're back to where we began, except now there is a autoimmune or a there's some something else going on, which is what led to the organ being removed. And this is something that didn't just go away, right? This was something that now was a new unknown process. Go into a little bit about the challenges of discovering this new complication that all came from the initial transplant. During transplant, they basically ruin your immune system, not once, not twice, but probably hundreds of times with immunosuppressants, steroids, everything that you can imagine. So at a very young age, they not just knocked down my immune system, but they gave me somebody else's immune system inside of my body. So now there's two people fighting against each other and one body with all of these drugs kind of arguing as well. Um, so it's a whole disaster going on inside when <laughs> you kind of can picture it. They're just kind of everybody's fighting within one thing. And obviously it's going to cause some other reactions to happen. Uh, at the time, we didn't know that this was going to lead to anything severe or anything more chronic than what was planned at, at the time. Uh, we just kind of lived on with life. I didn't have any symptoms of any odd diseases. Think very fortunate that I didn't gain or didn't get diagnosed with some of the rare cancers that people get afterwards and things like that, um, except for the PTLD that I had during transplant that caused tumors across my spine. But other than that, I just kind of 
we went back to normal, but on the inside, something new was brewing, as my mom would say, um, which we actually found out when I was a sophomore in college. So about 10 years post-transplant is when we found out about some of these things that we can relate back to transplant. During the transplant, I think this is a wild concept, and I, I am I'm in awe of the medical technology that this even happens. So when you get a transplant, you're getting someone else's organ and inside that organ, they have, it's the other person's body, right? Essentially. So they put in this foreign object, which is needed to save your life, but also is fighting your body. Your body is fighting the organ. The organ is fighting your body. And then the the doctors and the and the technology, they put in these drugs to try to like, hey, you two get along, but also those medications attack you um, and are trying to tell your body, hey, don't kill this organ we just gave you. So it's this like tornado, the storm inside of you that everything is fighting itself and kind of like trying to rewrite the rules and your body's just like, what is going on? And then, you know, you found out years later that that did have some type of um, it did have some type of consequence. And, but first I want to get back to the organ is removed and then you go back to normal life. What did that, what did that quote unquote normal life look like to Antonella? Uh, normal life at nine year old Antonella again became 18 hours of IV nutrition, uh, TPN, which is TPN is just all of my calories that an average person eats in a day. I get it through an IV bag while I sleep at night. Um, for 18 hours, I was receiving that. I was going to school with a backpack on my bag um, where I would go to school. And by the time I got home, my mom would disconnect me. I had a couple hours free and I would get a new bag on. Um, it meant that my mom was my arch nemesis and my best friend because thanks to her, um, she was the best, best physical therapist, physical therapist I will ever have in my life. Um, she is the reason that I began walking again and using my hands again. I was very fragile. Uh, I was for a nine-year-old kid. I looked like I was about four or five years old body wise, um, just very weak and things like that, where my mom made me, you know, walk the steps, take an extra hike, um, eat something I would never typically eat, try a milkshake, do this. I had very bad food aversions when I was younger. Food very much so grossed me out. Um, I never felt hungry because I was getting all of it through an IV bag. Um, so we were back to that where lunchtime at school was kind of me staring at people again and not being able to eat where I still had this backpack on my back that I had to carry around and couldn't do gym classes. Um, just wanting to eat some things, but wasn't allowed to eat them because they were going to make me get sick and I would just didn't want to feel sick anymore. So it was kind of just trying to get back to my old self. What I was normal, it was well, my usual normal while was 10 times harder. And I was very frustrated as to why I just can't be back there again. Why do I have to start from square one again? And why can't I just go back there? And it was frustrating because I would have rather been back to my quote unquote normal that I knew before transplant than this new normal that I had to accept. Yeah. It was a change from young baby Antonella. And now it's, um, adolescent Antonella with a backpack, getting 18 hours of nutrition through a line in your chest and weekly doctor's appointments. But then adolescent Antonella becomes adult Antonella and it led you to a career path that was kind of close related to what was going on in your life. So tell me about how you chose to become a nurse 
And why did you want to be a nurse? So uh, choosing a career path at that age was very hard for me. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to be. Um, I knew if I spent another second in a hospital, I would become absolutely lunatic. That was the only thing I knew was hospital home, hospital home, hospital home. I didn't know any of the other worlds. I didn't know the hospitality world, the business world, the management world, anything. I just kind of knew medicine and that was it. So instead of um, wanting to be involved in the lives of my patients, like most of my nurses are to this day, 26 years later, um, they're not just nurses anymore. They're more of like family to me. And when one goes, it's like losing your best friend. So it's it took very, um, some nurses leaving took a lot of mental effect on me. It was really hard to watch them grow and not have them take care of me and things like that. And I never wanted to create those bonds ever. I never wanted that. I never wanted to be that person for somebody else. <laughs> uh, so I originally started off college as a biochem major and three months into the program, I was like, there's no way I can do this. I don't want to do this at all. My heart is pulling me into nursing that's where I belong. Um, I'll just pick a profession. I just promise not to get myself so involved into it. And that's kind of what I did. I went into nursing with a open head, clear-minded, didn't want to get involved as my nurses were involved with me and watch those heartbreaks and things. And it's not just the relationships, but it's the losing patients. And I know how mentally they were drained and how hard it was for them. And I didn't want to have to experience some of those things all over again. So as the patient, you fell, you created these, these bonds with these nurses. And then eventually those bonds, you know, either the nurses moved on to different careers, they retired, whatever happened to them. So for you, it was really painful to lose a nurse. And so you also know how they felt having to watch these children suffer and struggle. And you never wanted to be in that position where you could identify with both ends. And I, I think that's really important to understand that boundary that you wanted to help people, but you couldn't put yourself in the position that you were already in. But during nursing school, which is already a intensive, exhausting, you know, horrible education, it, it is so stressful. You had this finally this culmination of this brewing storm that happened from the initial transplant. It kind of came to a head and in the middle of your education, you developed a really, um, really horrible autoimmune disorder. And tell me a little bit about what happened, what that was like, and how that affected your education. Yeah. So sophomore year of college, I started complaining that I was very fatigued. My joints were very swollen. Um, from my wrists down, my hands were about the size. I don't know. They were huge. I looked like the hamburger helper mitten. <laughs> They were absolutely swollen and marbled. Um, and I just kept saying that they hurt. My joints hurt. My right knee hurts. My hip hurts. But never really anything to stop what I was doing. I kind of just kept going with it until one day I went to a doctor's appointment and I put my hands down on the counter and the one nurse looked at me and she said, what's wrong with your hands? Why do they look like that? And I was like, I don't know. I thought everybody's hands looked like this. And she said, no, no, you absolutely need to go see a rheumatologist tomorrow if not right now, because that is something that's an issue. We need to solve that as soon as we can. Um, and to me, that was also another, ugh, I have to go to another appointment and keep track of another thing that I just don't want to do. I simply just 
wanted to do college. <laughs> I didn't want to do any more appointments. I didn't want to do anything else. And I went to the rheumatologist and everything was okay. I didn't really have any symptoms at the time, but my hands were blue and they couldn't really diagnose me at the time with anything. Um, they called it Raynaud's at the beginning because my hands were turned marble when it was cold, things like that, but nothing, anything severe treatment needed at the time. Uh, farther in to my sophomore year, so around Christmas time, I developed my first flare up, which was one of the worst experiences at the time that I possibly could have ever, that I've had so far with everything going on. Every joint in my body was extremely swollen. Uh, I couldn't move my wrists. I couldn't make fists. My fingers were not bendable. Uh, my hips were so swollen that I wasn't able to step on my feet. Uh, it was excruciating. I mean, somebody touching me, a sheet even hitting me was tears upon tears of painfulness. And that's when we discovered that I have an autoimmune disease. Um, to this day, unfortunately, we don't have a direct diagnosis of what it could be. It's kind of under an umbrella term um, because I have characteristics of some things here and some characteristics over here, but nothing falls into the same category. But we do know that when my body starts flaring up or I start even just a joint that's swollen in one of my fingers, um, that automatically means that I have an infection of some kind and my body is developing kind of a response to it and it's going to start swelling. And before it starts swelling, we should get that taken care of before it gets any worse. Aside from shortcut syndrome, transplant, this <clears throat> spinal tumors, getting the transplant out having this 18 hours of TPN, developing this autoimmune. Every time you get an infection, this autoimmune disorder that's unknown, no one knows what really the, defini the defined disorder is. It's just this conglomeration of multiple things. You still end up graduating nursing school and becoming a nurse. And shortly after that, in 2020, which was a tough year for everybody, but even more so for you, you make the decision to move back to Croatia where you were born. And tell me a little bit about why you moved back and what that move was like. Uh, so as you said, that was probably the hardest year for everybody to survive through, but I don't know. It was a pretty hard year for me. Um, I was basically just having a very hard time coping with a lot of things during that time. I no longer, my health was kind of balancing and it was at a neutral state and, and point where it wasn't going to get any better. It could only go back. Um, just kind of cruising. I was kind of cruising. I was doing everything as I was expected to do. Nothing was going to get better, but if it got worse, it was kind of much worse and it took me down for the count. But I kind of just saw it as a, as I needed a change, as I needed something else in life. And I always said, and my parents always taught me quality over quantity. Um, and as one of my GI doctors always said to me, he would rather see me live to be 50 and have a great quality of life and do what I wanted to do than see me be 100 and not accomplish what I ever dreamt of. So that was one quote that always stuck with me. And when he told me that, I was just kind of going into um, my senior year of high school when he said that to me. And those words have ever stuck with me since then. They've actually inspired a lot of my choices in life and why I chose to do that. And that's that was kind of one of the pulling grass factors in why this change 
of moving back to Croatia was made. I knew if I wasn't going to get better and I knew that second transplant wasn't really an option for me anymore at this point, because I just, my life was good. Um, my life was okay. I adjusted to my TPN. I only had five hours, five days a week. I was doing okay. There was nothing to complain about. There was, I was doing everything that everybody else was doing. So everything was smooth. Um, but I just felt like there was a little more that I needed to do. And I think that just, I highly recommend that everybody moves home away from their hometown at one point in their life um, and experiences a part of the world, a new city, even a new block, a new neighborhood. Um, it kind of changes you and develops you into a different human. And you kind of look back and you think, wow, it really did help me grow as a person and um, see new things and my perspective on life and things have enormously changed since that, since that move, um, especially within the past year. So it was hard, but it was definitely something I would do all over again. So you found that Pittsburgh, although was your new home and and the, the, the town that you considered, you know, Antonella's life, you moved back to your roots, to your history, to, to Croatia. And you were moving from Pittsburgh, which is this revolutionary medical place. So UPMC is a leading, it's a leader in, in medicine. They have surgeons that are doing procedures. Like you said, it was one of the first places to start doing transplants. And so moving from this kind of leader in medicine back to Croatia, there were some changes in the healthcare system. Tell me a little bit about what that looked like. Uh, what was different? What was better? What was worse? And how that affected your care, because you are someone that does require medical attention from time to time. Yes. Uh, so Croatia falls under the universal healthcare system. So healthcare is free, um, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Um, it's kind of when I came here, I hopped back into the 1980s. Um, the walls of the hospitals are crumbling. Everything kind of looks like a hospital just when it was first originally built. The beds are falling apart. Um, the nurses are still wearing some of the typical old style nursing uniforms, um, things like that mentality of healthcare professionals here is very different as well. Um, we're here a lot of, since it's universal, a doctor tells you what to do, you do it. And that's just how it is where versus in the States, you kind of have that opportunity to question, challenge, double think, negotiate, talk about, um, and, I don't know. I always advocated for myself and thought that I, nobody can better advocate for me than for me. And it was really a hard change when the doctor told me that I should be doing this, this, and this, and I can't do this. And I looked at him and I said, I've been doing this for 22 years. Why would I change anything about it? And he looked at me and said, because you need to. And I just kind of looked and smiled and said, yes, sure. Whatever you say, but really I've been doing it for years and why would I change that now? Um, there was nothing that I wanted to change about it. Um, the technology here is obviously very outdated and it's very hard to get into an MRI, CT. Uh, some of the medications that I had in the States um, don't even exist here. Uh, some of the medications that here are now getting trialed in the States have been used in Europe for the past five to 10 years which have significantly also changed my health since I've moved here. So it's kind of a 50-50. I lost in some parts. I gained in some parts. Um, I don't think one 
is better than the other, in all honesty. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe in the aspect of listening, you know, US, absolutely. But I wouldn't say, or just appearance, maybe the, U, the US definitely, and technology-wise and knowledge-wise, um, absolutely there. But you kind of give what you get in a way. Um, I'm sure some doctor told me in the States to sit down and do this and this. I would have probably said, okay, and had the same response. It's kind of just how you approach the situation and how you deal with it. And that's kind of what you have to do when you're in these situations. I put myself in the situation to be here, um, to kind of have to accept what's given to me. And whatever I did, I could have stomped my feet and cried and protested and um, made a whole scene, but I chose to be here. So now I had to adapt to this normal and not the normal that I knew. And so you're getting acquainted with the Croatian healthcare system, the good, the bad. Um, and then something completely different happens to you. Like you've already been through these multiple challenges and then you move to a new country and something happens. What, what happened to your health at this point? So around Christmas time of 2020, uh, I started swelling up very badly, just kind of swelling joints pain very badly. And I kept going back to my rheumatologist. They kept giving me higher steroids. I kept going back. I was in pain. Nobody believed that I was in pain um, because I was still walking. I was functioning. I did not want to be admitted to the hospital because I just thought, why would I want to be there when COVID is happening? I would rather be at home, give me something at home. Let me do an extra Humira neck injection. Let me do this. Let me do that. Let's talk about it. Nothing. Um, there was really nothing was helping. It was kind of just getting worse and worse as the days went on. Um, and to the point that I started swelling so bad that one night I was on FaceTime with my mom and she was listening to me and I stopped, I would stop talking because I was so short of breath. I basically just couldn't breathe anymore. I just... I would take a deep breath and finish two words and be deep out of breath again. And she was on baseline with me and she said, why are you breathing like that? What's wrong with you? And I said, well, I have nothing wrong with me. I'm breathing just fine. And she was like, okay, well, I don't know, but it sounds a little strange through the microphone. And I was like, you're just being dramatic, mom. Everything's fine. I'm fine. Nothing to worry about. And come a week later, I finally realized that I was not doing so well. Um, my joints started hurting so bad that I couldn't even stand on my feet again. I was alone. My feet were so swollen. I couldn't stand on them. I had to feed myself. I had to take care of myself. And there was just absolutely no way to do this. I called my cousin at the time and I told him, hey, I need you to take me to the ER. Let me just get a cup bag packed. I'm just going to bring the basics. I'll be out of here in three days. It's probably a central line infection. No big deal. I have things to do. I want to go home. And... He dropped me off at the hospital and I said, Monday at 3 p.m., make sure you're in front of this door to pick me up because they're going to let me go home because that's enough days of antibiotics. And he looked at me and said, OK, I'll be here. Um, so that was Friday night and that was Friday afternoon and Friday night around 7 p.m. I got the news that I needed to get open heart surgery, um, that there was a blood clot in my right atrium that was so big that it started embedding into my heart muscle and was covering up the whole atrium and that this was not something that we could push off. Um, the most that they are willing to push off is till tomorrow, which is Saturday. 
but that they're going to try and get one of the most advanced surgeons that they could get into, and it would be a pediatric cardio, uh, cardiac surgeon in. And I just kind of at that point, that's when I thought it was over. That's the minute where I saw life over and flash before my eyes and I made peace with it. And I basically said, if this and one more thing happens to me, I can't do it anymore. And I remember calling my parents on the phone and I was laughing and my dad said, something's wrong with her because she's laughing like that. What's wrong with her? And I just laughed and I said, I have to get open heart surgery. Um, but don't worry if I die, everything's okay. When you plan my funeral, don't wear black and make sure everybody takes a tequila shot at the door. And you have to make sure that all my best friends show funny pictures and videos. And my mom said, what are you talking about? And my dad instantly almost fainted. And I hung up because I was just in a shock. I didn't know what to say at the point. And so I was just sitting there and I just millions of pictures were going through my head of my parents, my brothers, my best friends back home who I just left. And I didn't I thought I was just saying a see you later, not a goodbye forever. Anything else that like what I wanted to do with my life, how I felt just kind of that was it. And I was alone in this hospital room by myself in a city that I don't know in a place where I don't know anybody and I have to do this all alone, where honestly death sounded a lot better at the time. And it just sounded like maybe if that was, that was the end, but that was the best place to do it. Uh, So I was in ICU. I've been, I was transferred in there. And thankfully one of the the pediatric cardiologists um, looked at me and said, I have one surgeon that I want to perform the surgery on her. Unfortunately, he's away and split at the moment, but he will be back Monday morning and we'll do the surgery then. For right now, she needs to stay in the ICU. You need to monitor her as closely as possible. That means that nurse is one-on-one absolutely with her. Um, There can be, when she says something hurts, you jump up and medically react to her, um, things like that. We have to make sure that this clot does not break off. If she shows any signs of that, we need to react then, but for now, we believe that Monday morning with so-and-so would be the best time. And so I spent two days in the ICU. And during those two days, I met one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever met in my life. Um, she's one of the ICU doctors down there. And she was kind of God sent or sent to me by something in the universe to to help me through this because she sat by my bedside for two days straight and just kept talking to me. She's never met me a day in my life. She knew nothing about me. Um, She would come in and hold my hand. She would tell me everything's going to be okay. um, And just talk to me through it. And I told her one night or the day when came, it was at 7am Monday morning and she was just about to leave her shift. And she said, I'm not going to leave. I promise you till we take you to the operating room. And I said, it's okay, you can go home. Um, You know, you just worked all night. And she was like, no, no, I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to make sure to know exactly what happens with you the whole day. And she stayed. (laughs) She didn't just stay like for the time it took me. She stayed for an extra couple hours to make sure that everything was okay. And so they took me into the operating room. They wheeled me in and I gave her my phone because I said my goodbyes to my parents one last time. Uh, And I looked at her in the eyes and I said, I want you to know that I'm not afraid to die. But if I were to die, can you please just call my parents? 
here's their phone number on the back of this phone and tell them I love them very much. And she looked at me and she said, you're not going to die. I promise you, you have the best team taking care of you. And I said, I know, but if there's, if there's a reason for me to die and this is it, I accept it. And they put me on the OR table and everybody was rushing around me because it was, this needed to be done three days ago. Um, and they put me on the OR table and the anesthesiologist looked down at me as I was, tears were coming out of my eyes. And she said, just close your eyes and I promise you, you're going to wake up and I'll be right here. And I just kind of looked at her and I was like, you're going to leave the instant that you shut off that anesthesia machine. And you're not even going to remember what my name is or who I am. So, but okay, thank you. And she put the mask on me and the surgeon actually walked into the room and he looked at me and he said, I read your chart. You're one hell of a girl and you got a lot of life left to live in you. And I promise we're going to do it together. And I looked at him and I said, you got it, dude. <laughs> and the whole OR team laughed and everybody was like, it's time to go. And I remember closing my eyes and I said, you better take good care of me because my body's worth a lot. <laughs> and they all started laughing. And then I fell back asleep. And I remember opening my eyes up <laughs> in the ICU again. And they thought that they were going to have me asleep for the next 12 to 24 hours as a normal average person would be. Uh, I woke up four hours after open heart surgery <laughs> and ready to go. Um, I woke up with bandages up across my whole neck, my chest, uh, everything. And everybody looked at me. I woke up my eyes. They took out my breathing tube and everybody, there's at least 10 people at my bedside looking at me like, what are you doing up? And I was like, it hurts. <laughs> everything hurts. Why does this hurt so bad? And everybody was like, because you just got out of the OR four hours ago. Like, you should still be sleeping. And I was like, it hurts, it hurts. But that was also one experience that was very unforgetful. Um, the healthcare system here, they avoid pain medicine as much as possible. Um, you know, ibuprofens, Tylenols, penistamols, that's what they give you for pain. Uh, usually that works for people, you know, when they have never experienced anything higher than those equivalents. Um, but in the U.S. healthcare system, uh, I'm sure, you know, working as an ER nurse, you come in and you say your pinky hurts. There's a very big high chance you're going to get some morphine or some dilaudid. And unfortunately, years worth of that, the Tylenol doesn't work for an, a broken chest. And, you know, the average dose no longer cuts it. And you need to a lot more than the average person would know. And the culture here is different. So recovery was really hard because I was in so much pain. Recovery was really hard because everybody thought I was kind of making it up at one point. Recovery was even harder because I didn't want to do anything because I was alone. There was no will to do anything. It was kind of just hard and it's still continues to be hard, even a year post, a year and a half post, uh, just kind of realizing how out of shape that took me, how physically and mentally drained I was. Um, I'm going to say year post now, August of 2022, I can finally say I'm back to being mentally and physically okay again after all of that, um, where my body is now doing much better, where my mind is in a million anxious thoughts and feeling ways of depression and 
things that such that were just normal everyday life things are now kind of coming back to normal where it's easier to do a lot of things and spend time with other people and talk about these feelings that I never really talked about. I can't imagine not only having been through everything in your life, constantly telling you like, you can't do it. You're not going to make it. You're going to be sick forever. You don't get to be normal. You don't get to be healthy. You're going to have something new, something worse, something harder, something more challenging. And then you just wake up and you're like, I'm alive. This fucking hurts. And like, that is like the true nature of Antonella is like, I'm not going to give up and I'm going to come full force, always a hundred percent. And, you know, now a year and a half later, you're recovered, you're thriving in Croatia. I'm coming to visit you right after Christmas this year. So I'm very excited to see you and maybe learn to speak Croatian a little bit. Um, But everything you've been through, there's no way that what you've experienced in your life hasn't affected your beliefs about death. And like you were saying, in the Croatian OR, you had accepted that death might be easier than another thing, another challenge. So in your in your life, how has everything that you've been through reinforced, changed, challenged, or affected your belief around death? Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, I feel so since I grew up sick, this was kind of the only life that I really knew. Um, being sick was the only lifestyle that I knew. I really never had something to compare it to. I could only compare it to something better or worse, but nothing drastically different. Um, but I remember when I was really little, I would think I was like six or seven. And that's like when I first started realizing what my diagnosis was, what life was like to hold, what the future was like, just like when I started grasping life and going into school, I was really sick one time and me and my mom were in the hospital for a central line infection. And, uh, you know, at a six or seven year old growing up to that, it's average. It's what, you know, nothing better, nothing worse. And I remember my mom took me for a specific reason to the oncology unit at children's and she made me take a lap around the unit. And I looked at her and I said, why are we up here? And she said, I want you to remember when you're having a really, really hard day and you think that this is worse, that you remember all of these little girls and boys up here that have it worse. Yours might be bad, but you don't have what they have. And I walked up there and I had, my mom braided my braids in and she put ponies in my hair. And there was a little girl that looked at her mom while we were walking the unit and she said, I can't wait to have hair like her one day. And my mom and her mom became very good friends. And they talked all the time. Unfortunately, she passed away um, due to leukemia. And um, she kind of stayed with me as a way of remembering that. One day, she wants to have pretty hair like me, wherever says one day, I want to do a million other things that some people find that to me was like, oh, she wants to have hair like me. Like, like that's not so hard. Um, like, like, she can do that. Where, you know, some people are, I don't know, where right day right now I want to just be happy I want to just not have a doctor's appointment I want to just experience the beach and swim and do these little things that a lot of people take for granted every day Um, and I notice it more and more since I've moved here how little how these little things that we take for granted are more noticeable in this culture Um, I don't know I enjoy every morning at 6 a.m much as I don't want to wake up and I walk my dog, I 
reminisce on things that I've done the day before. And I say what I'm grateful for, for that day, even if it's just a cup of coffee or a glass of water or bread. And that just helps me remember that things could be worse and I couldn't have that coffee or that water or anything like that. And it's, it's really changed my views because I don't know. I don't, I don't think tomorrow's ever promised to any of us. You know, I could walk out in the middle of the street and the bus could hit me. What are the chances of that happening? Probably slim to none, but still that's possible. My chances of something happening to me are a little higher medically wise, and I've accepted it to the best that I can. And um, as I've told all of you guys, and I've told my own parents, um, if something were to happen to me, everybody knows what I want. I don't want a sad funeral. I don't want everybody in black. I don't want the typical things. I don't want it to be a funeral. I want it to be a celebration of the life that I had. Um, Because at the end of the day, I felt like I, every day when I wake up, I feel like I do a little bit more. And if this podcast reaches one person in the whole world that maybe has SBS or that's 26 and struggling with a challenge of a disease or just doesn't feel like they fit in or something, then I did my part. And I just feel like that's what's important. And I try to be the best that I can in doing what I think every day. And I know that in your life, you have made a lot of friends that have similar disease processes. And when you grew up in the children's hospital, you make friends with other children in the hospital. And you have had the opportunity to unfortunately outlive a lot of your friends how does that, how does that affect you or how does that help you live your life or what, what effect does that have on you? I lost my best friend Kirsten a couple years back and I don't think anything will compare to that. Um, It's very hard to this day. Sometimes I hear a song or see something and to this day get like a rush of emotions um, because I was physically there with her. Um, I held her hand the last couple of days. I sang to her. I danced in an ICU bed <laughs> with her. I uh, sang Taylor Swift to her. I did everything I could just to make sure that she knew I was there. And if she could have heard me or reacted to me, she probably would have hit me. And that's exactly what I, I hope she would have done. Um, that's the year that I transferred from a biochem major to a nursing major. And I was doing it not just for me anymore, but I was doing it for her. She also wanted to be a nurse. And at the end of my diploma, when I got that diploma, I kind of looked up and I said, Kirsten, this one's for you. And we did it together. Um, Because I do everything that I do, I kind of bring it back to something that a, they didn't get a chance to do is about or Kirsten or Ben or Nancy or Danielle or any of the kids or any of my friends that I've lost throughout these years. Um, I got to live a life that they never got to experience. And some days I feel, I don't know what it's, um, guilt. I feel guilty about it. I feel honestly guilty about that. I got to do it and they didn't. So I just do it with a little more love and passion. And I remind myself, I get to do this and they didn't do it. So let's, let's do it 10 times better because they would have been more proud or let's do it 10 times more because we can for them. Or, you know, right now, as tired as I am, I know somebody up there is helping me or listening to me and is rooting me on and cheering me on and helping me get through these hard times. 
I think it's really special that you can say on the worst days that you've ever had that you, you know, when you don't want to keep going, you do because of their love and, and your love for them. And I think that that's really special. And it makes me want to live more authentically and better whenever I think about how crappy I am with something inconveniences me because my life is not that bad. But when something inconveniences me, you know, I get to look and say, I, be, I get to be grateful for the things that I have that so many others don't. And I think even in your situation, when I don't think anyone would ever judge you for saying my life is challenging. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes I don't want to do it. But like every day you're like, I'm getting up. I'm walking Mo, your dog. I'm going to Pilates. I'm going to work. I'm making friends. I'm going out. I'm living my life. And I just want to thank you for that because it reminds me on the days that I want to cry because I'm a baby that, you know, it could be worse. And if you can look at the positive of, of your life, which has been really challenging and difficult, then there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to. Well, you know, I'm always rooting you on, even on your bad days and your good days and all your days in between. I'm always here. Thank you. So I do want to ask one last question. It does not have to be related to Antonella short gut syndrome or your autoimmune, or it could be whatever you feel like sharing, but if you could share one little tidbit, a piece of advice, a quote, something for the listener to think on, what would that be? I'm going to use the word live because tomorrow's never promised. You never know what's going to happen. So you just have to truly live with passion and love and just do what you want to do. Um, I have that word tattooed on my body and I live by it. I live by it every day and I live by it fearlessly and I tackle everything head on. And that's what I think everybody should do is just live your life out to the best of your abilities and don't be afraid because we're all going to die one day. But as I'd like to say, I would like to go out with a bang <laughs> um, and make it the best way to go out. So just make sure that you're doing it and that you can say that you are proud of it at the end. Well, I am proud of you. <laughs> And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. I miss you so much and I cannot wait to hug you in just a few short months. I can't wait either. Love you so much. Love you. Thank you guys so much for listening to my dear friend Antonella's story. She is so inspiring. And if you would like to connect with her or follow along with her journey as she continues to live in Zagreb, Croatia, as a beautiful woman with a chronic illness, you can find her on Instagram at NellaBellaX3, N-E-L-L-A-B-E-L-L-A-X, the number three. And I ask that if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review or rating on your streaming platform. It really does help the show reach as many people as possible, which is something we can all benefit from. And always, if you are someone you know has a unique relationship or experience relating to death and would be interested in sharing your story with me, please email your stories to embracingdeathpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning into Embracing Death. The more we talk about death, the more we learn, the more we learn, the less we fear, and the less we fear, the more we can embrace not only death, but the lives we still have yet to live. And as Albert Pike stated, what we have done for ourselves alone dies with us. What we have done for others and the world remains and is immortal. We will see you next week.